Hi, everyone. My name is Larry. I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic. You think you was panic stricken a week and a half ago? I am right now. You know, it. Uh, I never get used to this, but I want to tell you my sobriety dates November the seventh, nineteen seventy-eight. My home group's the Shively Group. We meet at St. Helen's Church on Sunday night, and my sponsor's a guy named Bud. I call him Bud Light. <laughs> He's brand new. I just lost my sponsor. A lot of y'all knew Jack S. And uh, I had to get another sponsor, and I run into this guy, Bud. And we all nicknamed him Bud Light. I asked him to be my sponsor, and it's working out pretty good. Uh, I'm surprised to be here tonight. I haven't talked in uh, about seven months out of town. I have had some health problems, and I was going to take some time off, and I wasn't going to start talking again until December. I'm supposed to go somewhere in December. When Danette called me and asked me to come here, I thought, why not, you know. And we're so glad we come. We have had a wonderful time. I want to thank the committee and especially Mark and Danette. They have been so wonderful to us. We have had such a good time. And we didn't get here this morning. We missed Rich and the Alateens. But, boy, I'm going to tell you what. My socks has been blew off this afternoon. Because with Patty, I'm good friends with Patty's, and it was just so wonderful to get to hear you and to feel that energy. God, you got some energy. I'd like to take it home with me. And Linda Lee and Tom, you all told mine and Barbara's story. That's all I can tell you. I mean, we walked right through it with you. It's just beautiful. It's been a beautiful afternoon. You know, we're so glad that we've been blessed to be here. And what I'm going to do is what I was taught to do when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's to tell you what I was like, what happened, and what it's like today. You know, some people say they don't like to hear drunk a lot. Well, that's what you're going to hear tonight because that's what kept me sober. That's what the big book tells me to do, to tell my story. You know, and it's a dying art in Alcoholics Anonymous anymore, it seems like. You know, but that's what I'm going to do. I want to tell you that when I first got to AA, I heard a joke, and I want to share it, because it reminded me of me and Barbara. It was about this alcoholic, and he was a judge. Now, I've never been a judge, but I've been in front of a lot of them. And I like to tell jokes on them, and if there's one here, I'll make amends after the meeting. But it seemed like this judge wanted to get out and drink, and he kind of didn't know how to get out of the house, so he went up and told his wife he was going down to the courthouse and work on some papers. And he got out of the house, and he went to his favorite beer joint during the course of the night, he got drunker than a dog. And he went outside, and he got sick, and he threw up all over the front of his shirt. He said, Lord, what am I going to tell my wife? He tiptoed in that night, and he took his shirt off, and he threw it down the laundry hamper. And the next morning, he got up to go to work, and he started out the door, and his wife was there with his briefcase and his hat. And she said, Say, what happened to you last night? He said, Well, what do you mean, honey? And she said, Well, I was downstairs doing the laundry, and there's vomit all over the front of your shirt. Well, being a good alcoholic, he was a quick thinker. And he said, oh, honey, I meant to tell you about that. He said, I was down at the courthouse working on these papers, and they brought a drunk in. And I was trying to help with that drunk, and he got sick and threw up all over my shirt. He said, but don't you worry about it. I'm going to pay him back this morning when he comes in front of that bench. I'm going to give him 30 days. She said, you ought to give him 90 he said, how come 90? And she said, he done something in your pants, too. <laughs> that was me and Barbara. I could tell them, but I just couldn't stay ahead of them. I want to tell you, there's three kinds of alcohol, uh, three kinds of drinkers in the world. There's a social drinker, there's a heavy drinker, and there's an alcoholic. And I want to tell you how you tell the difference. 
If you'll watch a social drinker, he'll go into a bar and he'll order a drink, and he'll sit down to drink that drink, and he'll look down, there'll be a fly in it. And he'll holler for the waitress, and he'll say, ma'am, there's a fly in my drink. Will you bring me a fresh one? She'll take his drink away and bring him a fresh drink. Now, the old heavy drinker will walk in. He'll order that same drink, and he'll look down and see there's a fly in it. He'll pick the fly up, put it on the table, and he'll drink the drink. And I'm going to tell you about an alcoholic like me. If I walk into that bar, and I sit down, and I look down and see there's a fly in my drink, I'll grab him by the head and holler, spit it out. <laughs> you know, I want it all. I don't want to share mine with no fly or anything else. And that's the way I drink. You know, uh, I'm from an alcoholic family. Uh, before I go any further, I would like to introduce my wife. Uh, she's proud to be with me today, and I'm proud to be with her. And I'd like to introduce my wife, Barbara. We've been together 39 years, and when you hear my story, you'll want to meet Barbara. Believe me. But uh, I'm from an alcoholic family. I was born down in Louisville, Kentucky, and I was born down in a part of Louisville that was a rough place to grow up. It was called Portland. Boy, it was a tough place. It was a bar on every corner, and we lived in a, a neighborhood that was large Catholic families. Now, we wasn't Catholic, but my daddy must have took lessons from them, because they wound up being 13 of us kids, and there was nine boys in that family. And God, did I see alcoholism. It was all over my house. You know, if you caught my last name, it was Adams. Well, we was the Adams family long before they come on television. We provided the weekend entertainment in our neighborhood, you know. It wasn't nothing on a Friday and Saturday night to see police cars coming to our house. There was always somebody drunk, always somebody doing something. My father was an alcoholic, and I remember growing up as a small kid, my dad would come in on Friday nights, and he would be drunk, and him and my mother would get to arguing. And my daddy would get butcher knives and chase my mother through the house. And I'd lay under them beds in terror. You know, and I, I remember thinking, boy, when I get big, I'm going to get my mother, and I'm going to get her away from all this. Little did I know the same disease that my father and brothers have, I was to have also. Because I began to drink real early. Down where I live, kids got out of the house real early. You know, when you got 13 kids in a family, it's hard to keep track of all of them. And, and uh, I started drifting out on them street corners. And uh, there was a library hill up where I hung out. And us kids used to get up there at nighttime. And we would wrestle and play games, you know, like kids do. And, and I was up there, and I was 12 years old, and there was a bunch of guys up there. And they said, Larry, we're going to pull our money together tonight and get something to drink. Do you want to go with us? I didn't know nothing about alcohol at 12 years old. But I'll tell you what I wanted. I wanted to be part of that crowd on that corner. And I would have done anything they wanted me to that night to be accepted by that crowd. And we did. We pulled our money together, and we went out. And I got drunk, and I got sick, and I got in trouble with the police. And that's to be my story for about the next 20-some-odd years. I did it over and over and over. I quit school at 16, went to work on the racetrack. My dad had a rule at our house. It was called 16 and out. You know, uh, he had so many kids, he had to get rid of them. And uh, I quit school at 16, went to work on the racetrack. I had a brother, and he was a jockey, and he was rich and famous and, you know, rode a lot of horses and made big money, and he used to come home for visits. 
and he would have jockeys with him, and he'd take them up to them nice beer joints that we hung in where the band played behind chicken wire, and the tables was bolted to the floor, and they were shootings and cuttings and all of that. And, and my brother would throw them $20 bills around like he had just made them. And people would flock around him and tell him what a wonderful guy he was. I weighed less than 100 pounds when I was 16 years old, and I thought, that's it. I'm going away and become a rich, famous jockey. You know, and I did. I left home and went to Boston, Massachusetts to seek my fame and fortune. Now, if you've never heard about me, don't become too alarmed. <laughs> the only thing I wound up riding was a beach up in Boston called Revere Beach, because I immediately fell in with the people that drank and drug. And that's what I did. I run the country and, and just did what I wanted to. Got homesick, decided to come home, and, and I did. I come back home, and, and I walked up to that old library hill where all my friends was, and, and I'm standing up there, and, and uh, I hadn't seen Barbara. We grew up in the same neighborhood. We've known each other since we was about five years old. And I hadn't seen her for a while, and I was standing up there talking to the guys, and and she comes sashaying up the street, and she had grew up, and she had filled out, and she had what I wanted, and I was willing to go to any lengths to get it. Yeah. And uh, we began to slip around. Now, I tell you, we slipped around because Barbara's daddy forbidded her to talk to me. He would tell her, stay away from that Adams boy. Barbara was a good Christian girl. She went to a Christian school that taught her religion and the Bible. She didn't drink. She didn't smoke. She didn't cuss. She didn't gamble. She didn't know how to have any fun at all, you know. And uh, me and Barbara finally wound up getting married. And we was going to live happily ever after. And my alcoholism was really starting to snowball, you know. And we got married. And, and I remember Barbara telling me, why don't you drink at home? I said, well, that sounds good. We had a little apartment. And, and uh, I invited all my buddies over. She was pregnant with our first child. And she come in, and she was pregnant. She seen all of us sitting around that table drunk, and she looked at him, and she said, You all get your ass out of my house. And I thought, That can't be that good little religious girl I married saying that. And I told him, I said, You all sit down. I'm the master of this house. And we had them going like yo-yos for about the next 15 minutes. And, you know, they got embarrassed, and they got up and left, and, and that started a, a big free-for-all that me and Barbara had. And I never did drink at home after that. I was a bar drinker. I liked to be out where the excitement was. And that's the way we did, you know. Uh, we uh, we began to have children. It wasn't long. To, we had the first child, and it wasn't long that Barbara was pregnant with the second child. And it wasn't long till she was pregnant with the third child. And I thought, my God, we're going to have 13 like my daddy. <laughs> But we found out what was causing it, and we did something about it, you know. Uh, but our life was a shambles because I'm not working. I'm running with the wildest crowd I can find down in Louisville. And we would cruise around in cars, and if you left something out in your yard and we wanted it, we took it. Because I thought the world was a mark, and that's the way I live. And I don't have to tell you, when you live like that, sooner or later it catches up with you. And by the time I was 23 years old... Barbara, we done had two kids, and she was pregnant with her third. I found myself standing in one of them courtrooms of one of them judges I told you a joke about, and he sentenced me to ten years in the Kentucky State Prison. And Barbara was in that courtroom, and she was pregnant with her third child, and she began to cry. And my mother and daddy was in that courtroom, and they began to cry. And I remember looking back thinking, what the hell are you all crying for? I'm going to the penitentiary. You know, I tell you that because at 23 years old, I had lost the ability 
to care about another human being. Selfish and self-centered. But away I went to the penitentiary, and guess what? All my friends was there. It was like old home week when I got there. You know, and, and I got in there, and I just kind of fit in. And, and uh, one night I was walking a great big loop they got that goes around the penitentiary, and, and a buddy of mine come up, and he said, Larry, you want to go to a meeting? And I said, what kind of meeting? He said, an AA meeting. And I looked at him like he had two heads. I said, what in the world would I want to go to an AA meeting for in the penitentiary? He said, well, might look good to the parole board. I said, where's the meeting at? (laughs) I tell you about that because I believe the seeds to Alcoholics Anonymous was planted on me in that penitentiary. It took a long time for them to sprout. But Barbara went on aid for dependent children. And she had our third baby after I was in that penitentiary, and I held that baby for the first time behind bars. And I felt a lot of guilt. And Barbara would ride that bus up to see me on Sunday, and we would sit in that visiting room, and I made her all kinds of promises. I said, honey, you just wait, and when I get out of here, me, you, and them three kids are going to live happily ever after. I'm going to settle down, and we're going to do good. And I made parole, and I went home to Barbara and them three kids, and we lived happily ever after. For about two weeks. I got a little thirsty and I walked up to the corner to see my buddies and they said, Hey Larry, we're glad you're back. Have a beer. And I picked that bottle of beer up and it was like I never left. And I was off and running again. We tried a geographical cure about this time in our life. Uh, we moved out in Shively. I, I'm a painter by trade. You know, I, I can identify with them old pipe fitters. Uh, but I was a painter, and I'd got a, a maintenance paint job down in Rubbertown at this chemical company, and, and I'm working there, and we bought a house not too far from there. Barbara had won some money at the racetrack, and we moved into that house, and we was going to live happily ever after. And I remember shortly after we got there, Barbara come up to me, and she said, Larry, I know what's wrong with you. Now, Barbara always knew what was wrong with me. And I said, what's that? And she said, nobody's ever taught you how to drink. She said, I'm going to take you out tonight, and I'm going to learn you how to social drink. And I thought, hell, if you're buying, I'm going. You know, and and we did. We went out that night, and she got in the car, and we went out to a place on Bargetown Road there in Louisville called the Toy Tiger. Oh, real nice place. And, and we got out, man, I walked through that door, and that band got to playing. And yeah, there's Toy Tiger guy back there. Uh that band was a playing man. I started snapping my fingers. I thought, boy, we're going to have a good time in here tonight. And we sat down at the table, and Barbara ordered me a vodka and orange juice. And they brought it, and I went to chug a lug it down, and she reached over and said, no, 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 no. She said, you don't drink like that. She said, you sit here and you sip on this, and you listen to the music. And she said something I'll never forget. She said, two of these are to do you while we're here. <laughs> I thought, boy, we ain't going to be here long. <laughs> and you know, I, re- I remember sitting in that toy tiger and looking over, and she had that little old sick smile on her face. And I thought, damn you, I hate you. You don't want me to have no fun. And I told her, if this is social drinking, you can have it. And I snapped my fingers for that waitress, and she began to bring them drinks. And I started chugging lugging it down. And when we left that night, Barbara helped me out to the car. And she drove home, and she never took me back, so I guess I flunked social drinking, you know. But she's trying to help me. A lot of people are starting to say things about my drinking, you know, and our family just slowly disintegrated, you know. My kids got to the point where they didn't want me around. I got to the point where I didn't go home much. 
You know, I hung out in them bars and, and I began to lose weight. And you know, when you're uh, eating pickled weenies and pig feet out in them beer joints, you don't put on a whole lot of weight. And I didn't like to go home because barbers feeding me cold shoulder and hot tongue. And I didn't like either one of them. And our life was just upside down, you know. Uh, and I fell in 1974 while I was on the job. I fell and hurt myself. I had to be rushed to the hospital and had the first of many back surgeries. And I was off on uh, workman's comp, and, and my buddies would come by and bring whiskey and beer. And, you know, I got where I like being off. And I'd go back to the doctor, and he'd say, how you doing, Larry? And I'd say, well, I'm doing pretty good. But, man, I get nervous around that house. He said, oh, that's no problem. He'd give me a big old bottle of pills. And it was uh, nerve pills. He had on there, take as needed. Man, I found out them nerve pills and that whiskey really got you rolling. And from 74 to 78, I completely lost myself in alcohol and drugs. That's all I can tell you. I completely lost my family. You know, I wasn't able to be a father. I remember my son played football, my son David. And he said, Dad, will you come to the game tonight? I'm playing. I said, I'll be there, son. And our daughters was cheerleaders. And I'd tell them I'd be at the games. And I did. I went to every game they was at. But while they was down on the field cheering and playing football, their drunken father was up in the stands fighting and cursing. What an embarrassment I was to him. My son won a lot of trophies. And you know, I never seen my son get one trophy. The closest I ever got was the parking lot. While my son was getting a trophy, I was laying out in the parking lot and passed out in a pool of puke. But I'd have told you, leave me alone. I'm not hurting anybody but myself. And it's truly a family illness, I know that. You know, I can remember I would get up in the mornings and, and I would be all hung over and Barbara and the kids would be sitting at the table. And Barbara would start on me, you know, and I'd get behind her and look at the kids and I'd say, your mother's crazy. You know, and I want you to know that I poisoned them poor kids' minds. And, you know, she'd start and I'd say, if your mother would just get off my back, I wouldn't drink so much. And I'd slam out the door. And you know, it wasn't long till I heard my children would say, Mom, if you just wouldn't get on Dad's back so much, he wouldn't drink. And I'd done a lot of damage to that family. And it took a lot of years in Al-Anon and Alcoholics Anonymous for us to undo that damage. It's been a, a slow and painful journey for us. But I kept on going, and you know, when you're out there and you need to... You need alcohol and you need drugs and, you know, you need a lot of money. Uh, I began to work on the weekends because I needed extra money. And my brother Norman, he was drinking and running. He was my best friend. You know, Norman was kind of my hero. I used to hang in them joints and start fights. And you'd look at me and tell I'm not big enough to be a fighter. But Norman was a great big guy and he liked to fight. And I kept him in training. You know, I'd start him and he would finish him. And usually we kind of run together and, uh, you know, kind of get everything together. So he called me up on Friday night and he said, Larry, they need some painters out to Ford Motor Company. You want to work this weekend? I said, Lord, yes, I need the money. He said, well, we'll pick you up in the morning at 5.30. Be ready. And they did at 5.30. They honked the horn and I went out to the car and I crawled in the car and they had a bag of reefer laying on the front seat and a cooler full of vodka and orange juice and it was already wasted at 5.30 and I looked at them too and I thought boy we're going to have fun today it's going to be a good job and we went on that job and it wasn't long until that vodka and orange juice was gone and I told my nephew Donnie I said I'm going home he said what's the matter Uncle Larry and I said we ain't got nothing to drink I can't stay here 
And he, I, I said, let's go get some whiskey. And he said, we can't get out. And I said, yeah, we can. I said, they ride around on them little golf carts. And I went over to one of them golf carts and started it up. And me and Donnie, we run up to the gatehouse, parked that little old golf cart, and told that guard we had to go after some paint. And we did go after some paint at the liquor store. And we got a bottle of whiskey in every pocket that he and I had. Because I had five brothers working there that day. And I knew we'd better take back a lot of whiskey. And we got our whiskey and we went back. And as we went through the gatehouse, this guard spotted a bottle of whiskey in my nephew's pocket and he grabbed it. And we got kind of belligerent with him. And he got to arguing with us and he said, well, I'm going to call the captain and see what he wants to do with you two guys. And when he went to use the phone, we snatched up that bottle of whiskey and we run out and jumped on that golf cart we had left and away we went. And my nephew said, Uncle Larry, you better open this thing up. They're coming after us. And I looked back, and there was two guards, and they was on a golf cart. And I said, Well, I got this thing as wide open as it'll go. And he said, Well, you better do something, or we're going to get caught. And I rounded this corner, and when I did, I looked over by this building, and it was the shiniest fire engine I ever seen in my life. And I haven't drove one before, and I haven't drove one since. But I was drunk enough that day that I'd try anything. And we pulled over by that fire engine, and just my luck, it had the keys in it. And we jumped on it. Of course, I had to be the driver. And we got on it. And I don't know about you all, but you can't drive a fire engine until you get the light and the siren going. <laughs> we got that light and that siren going, and away we took off in that fire truck. And I remember my nephew Donnie waving by at them guards. And we got down in that plant, and I told my nephew, I said, you know, it'd be a shame still this fire engine not let my brother see it. I knew they wanted to see it, you know. And... uh <laughs> I told him to hang on, and, and uh, we went down through this building. It was just big enough to get this fire truck down, and we had that light going and that sirena going, and people was diving out of our way, and I remember my nephew hollering, Run over to them SPs, Uncle Larry, kill them. Had you stopped that fire engine that very day and said, One of you guys is going to the penitentiary, I said, So what? By the grace of a loving God... I've been able to be an Alcoholics Anonymous for almost 21 years, and that nephew is to spend the next 14 years in a penitentiary for something that happened alcohol-related. I don't know why God picked him and picked me to come to AA, but I'm grateful he did. But I want you to know we took that fire engine to where my brothers was, and they was real impressed. Their eyes got big and their mouth fell open. And every guard at the Ford Motor Company was impressed, too, because they all showed up there. And they was mad as hell. And we got to arguing with them, and one of these guards shoved me. I got up in his face, and he shoved me. And I told you all my brother Norman done my fighting. And when this guard shoved me, my brother Norman hit him upside the head. And we had one of the biggest free-for-alls out the Ford Motor Company you ever seen. Now, I used to tell this story in my favorite beer joint that went something like this, that we whipped every guard at the Ford Motor Company. But after I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, I found out about a word I hated called honesty. <laughs> Tonight I can tell you what really happened out there that day. We got the shit beat out of us. <laughs> and I was the littlest and I got the worst, believe me. They mopped the floor up with me. And they threw us out of there and we stood outside and we said, we'll be back. We're going home and get our pistols and we'll show you how bad we are. But we got detained along the way. We, get, we run into a beer joint. Now, I wind up wrecking a car that night, doing 90 miles an hour. You know, that's a pretty good Saturday even for me. That's a full Saturday. And uh, I woke up the next morning, and this wonderful little Christian girl that I'd married was beginning to change. 
And the morning I woke up after that weekend, I'm all beat up and my ribs are, I got some broken ribs. And Barbara had turned into an attack dog by then. <laughs> and she was sitting on my chest and she had that finger going right in my face. And she told me about all this wreck. I didn't remember none of it. I was in a total blackout. What I just told you all is what was told to me. And, uh, you know, I just played it off. I said, ah, if it had been that bad, I'd have been dead. And I went into work. That was in 1977. I went into work and I went over to the paint shop and everybody that was drinking and drugging was over there. And the phone rang and it was a personnel director. He said, Larry, I want to see you over at my office. This guy was a good friend of mine. And I went over to his office and he was looking out a window and he turned around and he looked at me. And he said, my God, Larry, you look awful. I thought, man, if you just had the kind of weekend I had, you wouldn't look so hot either. And he looked at me that morning in 1977, and to my knowledge, he was the first person to call me an alcoholic. He said, Larry, I know what's wrong with you. You're an alcoholic, and I know a place that can help you. And I got madder than heck. And I cussed him up one side and down the other, and slammed out of his office, went over to the paint shop, and all my buddies was over there. And he said, what did Bill want with you? I said, you all will never believe what he called me. They said, what's that, Larry? And I said, he said, I'm an alcoholic. They said, oh, he tells everybody that. Come on, have a beer. <laughs> Y'all know who I believe, don't you? I continued to drink for another year. And a year later, I was out with my brother Norman on a three-day drunk, and I overdosed on alcohol and drugs. And I wound up in University Hospital in Louisville, Kentucky, strapped down on a gurney. And they had a tube in every hole I had. I was sick as a dog. And a woman come up to me, and I found out she was a psychiatrist. And she said, Larry, we're going to put you away before you hurt yourself or somebody. And I'm laying on that gurney, sick and strapped down, and I thought, she's going to lock me up. So I began to con and manipulate like I'd done all my life. And I said, lady, if you'll let me out of this hospital, I'm going to do something about my drinking and drugging. And she said, do you really mean that, Larry? And I'm laying on a gurney, and I got straps on my legs and my waist and my arms, but I could get my swearing hand up. And I said, I swear to God, if you let me out of here, I'm going to do something. And, you know, she bought my story one more time. And I got out of that hospital, and I did do something. I stopped at the first beer joint I could find and got me something to drink, because I didn't know what else to do by now. Alcohol had me by the throat and was taking me down. I drank that weekend, and on November the 7th, 1978, I got up that morning like a thousand other mornings. And I started into work, and I had to pass that dire- uh, personnel director's office. And I remember what Bill had told me, and I was so sick. I was sick mentally, spiritually, and physically. And I tried Bill's door, and he wasn't there. And I went around on the side, and it was dark, and I knew he usually come in that way. And I sat on them steps. And I put my head in my hands, and I cried. I mean, I sobbed big tears, because I knew I couldn't do this no more. I knew that I was at the jumping-off place. And Bill come in and seen me sitting on them steps crying. And he said, what's the matter, Larry? And I said, Bill, you told me about a place that could help me. I said, please help me. And him and my wife took me to a treatment center on November the 7th, 1978. And I had no idea that I was about to begin a journey into Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm so glad to God I know today, don't let me see in the future. Because if I'd have seen all the pain I was about to go through, I'd have run like that. You know? I stayed 30 days in that treatment center, and I got out of that treatment center, and I went home to three teenage children, 
that was uncontrollable and a wife that I had drove almost insane. And I was so naive, I thought we was going to be the Beaver family. Oh, God, it was awful. You know, I went home and I sat Barbara and the kids down at the table and I said, things are going to be different. And my youngest daughter went, oh, no. And it hurt my feelings. And I went to an AA meeting that night and I met my sponsor. He wasn't my sponsor yet. His name was Dave. And I was telling him about it and I said, Dave, my family don't believe me. He said, hell, I don't believe you either. (laughs) He said, oh, we got to go on your track record. That's all your family's got. He said, how many times have you told your family you wasn't going to drink? I said, about a million. He said, Larry, I'm going to tell you something. Don't forget this. And Tom talked about it. He said, the greatest talk you'll ever make is the one you walk. He said, you got to walk in front of your family if you want them to believe you've changed. Now, I'd like to tell you that I was a shining example of Alcoholics Anonymous, but I was nuttier than a fruitcake. <laughs> I used to hold court at the kitchen table. Any of y'all ever done that? While they was trying to have dinner, and they wouldn't listen to me, and I'd have to pound on the table, and I'd have to throw little temper fits, and I'd jump up and down. And a guy in AA told me one day, he said, Larry, you know what's wrong with you? And I said, what's that? And he said, you got a little brat inside of you, and his name's Buster. And he said, Buster's running your life. You need to spank his butt and put him to bed. And I'm going to tell you what, if I'm not careful, Buster will run my life today. I have to give him a spanking every now and then and put him back to bed. But it was awful. You know, me and Barbara, uh, Barbara had started going to Al-Anon. I did not want her to go to Al-Anon because they began to teach her all kinds of dirty things to use on me. You know, and if you had asked me who I hated after I got to AA, I would have pointed at her Al-Anon sponsor. I hated that lady with a passion because she's saying all kinds of nasty things to me. We went to a meeting one night and Barbara and her sponsor come out of the back room there from an Al-Anon meeting, and I walked up and I said, I guess you all been back there talking about me. She said, why, you skinny little shrimp, what makes you think we'd waste an hour of our time on you? <laughs> I thought, i got to get her away from that woman. Because <laughs> Barbara began to say funny little things to me, like when I'd try and pick an argument, she'd say, you could be right. <laughs> oh, I hate it, Kevin. But I learned how to use that on her, too. <laughs> and I'd hear her walk away from me sometime, and she'd say, quack, 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 water over a duck's back. And I thought, that's another one of them little goofy sayings they've learned her. She had a dozen of them, and she used them all on me. But, you know, I knew how to straighten Barbara up, man. When it really I wanted to get real dirty, I'd look at her and say, I'll get drunk. And, boy, she'd snap to right now. But she stayed around at Al-Anon, and it wasn't long. So I said that to her one night. She wasn't doing what I wanted her to do, and I said, I'll get drunk. And boy, she wheeled around and got right up in my face, and she said, who gives a shit? (laughs) She said, your sobriety is your responsibility. I'll not take no credit for it, and I'll not take no blame for it. And I'll tell you what, it was tough that first year. She done took my hammer away from me, you know. And the only thing that I can tell you I was to do right is I went to an AA meeting every night. Sometimes two, you know. I went to as many as I needed, and that was almost every night. And, you know, some nights I left that house and I didn't know if I was going to get drunk 
or not, but somehow I would make it to a meeting or I'd make it to some AA's house that I'd run into. I remember going to my first meeting and, and I sit down at it and a guy walked up to me and his name was Bob, Bob W. And, and I really didn't want to talk to him. And I was sitting at a table and he sat down and he said, welcome to the Shabley group. My name's Bob and we're glad to have you here. And I thought, whoopee, you know. And I looked over at him and I had a little coffee in a cup and I said, how long you been sober? And he said, 16 years and I about spit coffee all over. I thought, 16 years? My God. You know, I'm trying to make 16 days. Uh, he had a little small talk with me and... And, you know, he got up and he went on to talk to somebody else. And I thought, that's probably the biggest liar in AA. <laughs> you know, and the next thought I had, I thought, I wonder if I touch him, if it'll work for me. I never touched Bob at night, but I want you to know that God touched me. Because when I had my 16th birthday, Bob celebrated that night with me and he had 32 years. And he become a real dear friend. You know, God works in strange ways. But thank God for the couples that give me and Barbara examples because when we got to this program we didn't even know how to communicate we used to sit at the table and just stare at each other we didn't know what to talk about all we ever talked about is what I'd done the night before and I'm not drinking now we just sat at the table and stare at each other but uh, Barbara's sponsor Nancy she had a husband I hated worse than her his name was Louie and Louie used a lot of four letter words on me and he wasn't very kind to me and they was always trying to get me and Barbara to go with other couples and go somewhere. And I'd tell Barbara, I'd say, if Louie calls, you tell him we ain't going. And Louie would call and Barbara would hand me the phone. <laughs> and I'd say, hi, Louie, what time are you going to pick us up? <laughs> I was scared of Louie. Thank God for Nancy and Louie. They was the first couple that was to take me and Barbara and show us how to be a couple. I didn't know how to be a husband. I didn't know how to be a father. Our children was gone. My son joined the Navy. Our two daughters left and went to Texas to live with my sister. And that left me and Barbara. Man, we was two sorry people. The only thing we had going for us was AA and Al-Anon. We began to talk about things that we heard at a meeting. About a speaker that maybe we heard. And we began to go places with AA and Al-Anon couples. And I remember the first time we went, we went with 50 couples. It was close, it was on a New Year's, wasn't it, Barbara? And we went to a place uh, down in Louisville to see a play. It was called Camelot. And uh, we went down, and man, I loved that play. I thought it was fantastic. And they had a, a intermission, halftime, whatever you want to call them plays. And, and I walked outside to smoke a cigarette, and one of my old buddies from Portland was out there. He said, Larry, I didn't know you liked this kind of stuff. I said, I didn't either. They didn't have them where I hung out. You know? <laughs> it's only been through this fellowship that me and Barbara has been able to experience so much. You know, our kids left, and, and I'm running with my sponsor, and, and this guy, he worked on a second shift, and I'd call him up. He worked in a computer room, and, and I'd call him up on a telephone. I had bad crises about 10 o'clock at night. I don't know if y'all did, but I had, it was bad ones about 10 o'clock. And I'd call him up, man, I'd beat on his head and tell my life. And he listened for a while, and then one night he said, Larry, why don't you do what normal people do? I said, what do normal people do? He said, at 10 o'clock at night, they go to bed, and he hung up on me. <laughs> what he was trying to tell me is keep it simple. You know, and I do that today. 
If I have a real bad day, sometimes I just go to bed early. It's always better the next day, you know, and thank God today I can say I don't have many bad days. You know, and we kept going to meetings. And I can remember somehow I stayed sober for a year and I got a token. And that was the happiest feeling I ever had in my life. You know, me and Barbara was together, and we was having a good life in AA and Al-Anon, and, and things were starting to look up. It wasn't easy. We had some bad times. You know, uh, like I told you, I had a lot of back injuries, and I was in and out of the hospital, and, and uh, finally in uh, 87, I had to retire on disability, and uh, I had been with that company 19 years, and they they almost forced me into retirement. I was 47 years old, and... And I thought, man, what am I going to do now? You know, and I had to uh, file for Social Security for disability. And me and Barbara put in a couple of bad years when we didn't have no money. And we didn't know where our next meal was coming from. We was trying to live on about five or $600 a month from my pension until I got my other money started. And I want you to know we had some bad times. But we never lost faith. We kept going to meetings. And we knew that God would do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And I remember one day that the mail came, and I opened the mail up, and there was a money order in there. And it said, from an anonymous donor. And down at the bottom it had, because we care. You don't know what that meant to me. It wasn't the money. It was knowing that people loved us enough that they would do something like that. And I remember Barbara asked me, she said, wouldn't you like to know? Who sent us that money? I said, no. I hope I never find out. Because you let me look out over a room and have a resentment for somebody, I think, man, that might have been the guy that sent me that money. It'll get rid of a resentment real fast. And, you know, I remember one day uh, I was laying on the living room floor and Barbara was laying on the couch. She said, Larry, what are we going to do? And I said, I don't know. I'm going to pray. And we got real quiet and about 10 or 15 minutes passed. And Barbara said, you through? And I said, yeah. And she said, what did God tell you? And I said, he said, oh, ye of little faith. You see, God picked me up out of a gutter, literally. And he brought me to this fellowship. And he's took care of me for the past 20 years, one day at a time. And I knew that with God, I'd found God in this fellowship. I didn't have no God when I got here. I hadn't said a prayer when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous since I was a kid. And my mother taught me to say, now I lay me down to sleep. And it was only watching you people and hearing about your God that I found a God of my understanding. One that loves me and wants the best for me. You know what gets me in trouble? When I forget why I come to Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, when I walked through them doors, I thought, God, just, just show me a way to live in this world without drinking. And you know, God's given me that. What gets me in trouble is the yeah buts, and I wished I hads. You know, when I want a new car, or I want to get me two 20s and trade Barbara in, you know, because she, she ain't treating me right. I don't know what I'd do with them if I got them. You know, there wouldn't be enough Viagra in the world for me. But it's all them silly little things, you know. It's them material things that trick me up. And you know, I'm so glad that Tom talked about it. It's the things that bleed to count. That's really true, Tom. You know, all that material stuff don't mean much. I'm retired now. I'm on Social Security, and, and our finances is a lot better. And, and Barbara's been awful sick. And, and uh, after I retired, 
I started cooking. Barbara learned me how to cook. And I think she did it for an ulterior motive. Now she don't cook at all. I do all the cooking. You know, but I'm grateful to do that. Barbara's not in the best of health. She's got quite a few health problems, and, and I'm able to do for her today. And I do it gladly. And I'm glad I can help take care of her, because I put her through a lot. And I don't do it out of guilt. I do it out of love, because I love her, and I want her life to be better today. And we get along real good today. You know, we've been together 39 years, and I hope we got a lot more together. Because we enjoy coming to these AA functions and getting to hear good speakers and meeting new people. And God has truly blessed us. Our children, like I told you, they all left home. And, and you know, I used to go to my sponsor. I'd got me a new sponsor. Uh, my first sponsor kind of quit AA. And he went to church and he never come around. So I had to get me a new sponsor and I asked Jack S. to be my sponsor. God, did I make a mistake there? <laughs> Thank God I asked Jack. He was just what I needed. You know, he never told me to do nothing. I'll tell you what he did. He walked this program for me. He taught me all about Alcoholics Anonymous by the way he lived. And that's how I learned. And, and you know, I told him one day, I said, I wish my kids would come home. And he said, be careful what you pray for. <laughs> and I want you to know that our children begin to come back home. And they didn't all come at once, thank God, because we'd have killed each other. He brought them back one at a time. He brought our youngest daughter, Sherry, back first. And we was able to start having a relationship with Sherry. she come back and live with me and Barbara, and she began to go to Al-Anon with us, and, and we began to have some wonderful times. She got a job at a bank, and, and she was working, and she come in all excited one night, and she said, Mom and Dad, I got us some tickets to the ballet. And I thought, oh, God. You know, I've never been to a ballet in my life. She said, well, you all go, and, and we knew she really wanted to be with us, and we wanted to be with her. And we did. We uh, went down to the Center for the Arts there in Louisville, and, and she had these tickets, and there was three rows back in the center. And we got settled down there, and it was going to start this ballet, and she was sitting in the middle of me and her mother. And, you know, she was proud to be with us, and we was proud to be with her. And this woman come out on the stage, and she was going to welcome some special guests that they had there. But she made a fatal mistake. She walked out and said, Hi, my name's Kathy. And I hollered, Hi, Kathy. <laughs> I was the only one in there that hollered, Hi, Kathy. <laughs> my daughter said, Dad, you can't take you nowhere. AA has completely run you. <laughs> and we've laughed. We've had some good times. She's uh, married today. She's back down in Texas. And and doing real good, and we talked to her pretty often, and hopefully we'll all get together, you know. But we was able to build that relation back with Sherry. She was so easy. Janet, our oldest daughter, she moved to Texas, got married, had two grandsons down there, and she would come home for visits. And when she would get ready to leave, I'd hug her, and it was like hugging a stone. She just had so much bitterness. She was our oldest, and she got the worst. She was the mama when Barbara couldn't be the mama. You know, she was the mama and the daddy. And she had a lot of resentments. And I'd go to my sponsor and I'd say, Man, Janet ain't never going to forgive me. He'd say, Yes, she will. In God's time. In God's time. You just keep doing what you're doing. And you know, Janet got involved in some uh, adult children of alcoholics meetings down in Texas. And she began to go to some Al-Anon and some counseling. She began to learn about this disease. And I remember she'd come home one day. And she got ready to leave, and I hugged her. 
and she hugged me back. I've truly been blessed. She went back to Texas, and I used to tell Barbara, I'd say, Barbara, and I'd tell my sponsor, I'd say, I wish they'd move closer to Kentucky so I could be around them grandkids. And he used to say, be careful what you pray for. She left her husband. And she moved to Kentucky, and she moved in with us, me and Barbara. Her and two little kids. And Barbara was working at that time, I think part-time, and Janet got a job working, and guess who babysat? I had a five-year-old and a seven-year-old. And I will tell you, we used to get everybody off, and I'd take the seven-year-old to the day school he went to, and whatever school it was, and, and me and a five-year-old spent the day together. And I told my sponsor, I said, me and him get along good. He said, you are too. You're all the same age. <laughs> them old sponsors, you can't get by them any way you try. But uh, me and this kid used to, we'd get everybody off, and we'd go to the video store, and we'd get a kid's movie, and we'd come home, and I'd fix him a snack, and we'd get up there, and I got this great big king-size bed and one of them big TVs, and we'd pop that kid's movie in there. And you know where he'd get? Right in the crook of my arm. And he'd be watching that movie, and he'd reach over and kiss me on the cheek. He'd say, I love you, Papa." Him and his brothers never seen me take a drink. They've never seen me in a drunken rage run their grandmother out of the house. And I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful to the God of my understanding in you people that they don't have to ever see me drink if I stay by you people one day at a time. They finally went home and everybody said, you're going to cry. I said, just till they get out of the driveway. I found out I can go visit them. But uh, they went back to Texas and Janet got a divorce. and She married a guy that had two little kids, a little girl. And we've got four grandbabies down there. And we love them to death. And we like to go down and spar them and then come home. <laughs> you know, and we've got a good relationship with them. They think we hang the moon. Uh, you know, and they're happy down there. And that's what matters. You know, I had to let my children grow and let them grow up any way they wanted to. My son David, I saved him for last because he's a chip off the old block. He did everything his daddy did. I watched him go through alcoholism that liked to kill me and his mother. You know, David did everything. He wound up in jails. He wound up in penitentiaries. He broke in our house. He stole from us. You name it, he did it. And you know, David would live out on the streets and there was times we would hear sirens and we didn't know if David was alive or dead. But we had to trust the loving God that had led us to these fellowships that he would take care of our son. And I'm happy to report to you today that next month I'll celebrate 21 years and my son David will be celebrating too the same night. I don't sponsor David today. <laughs> you know, I found out I can't do much with him. I leave my son to you all, and I'll take care of your sons. That's the way it works, you know. And uh, David's happy today. He's uh, got his own business going, and, and me and him fish today. And what a wonderful feeling it is to be out in the boat fishing with my son. And, you know, we're out there talking about AA and how much we love each other. And he calls us. He's in love right now. We don't get to see him as much, you know. And, and uh, I probably wouldn't pick this girl for him, but he didn't ask my opinion. Uh, you know, 
I try and stay out of his life. I love David today when he's good, and I love him when he's bad. I love him because he's my son, and I don't have to do anything. The only thing I can do is walk this fellowship and set an example for my son. And he's here today, you know, in in AA, and I know that if God removes me from the face of this earth this very night, that I don't have to worry about my son. And I know I don't have to worry about my wife because they've got programs that they can come to and they can hold on to. And what a great feeling it is, you know. I don't have to be responsible for another person's life today. And I'm so grateful for that. I was able to see my brother Norman. What time did I start, Chuck? Huh? Whenever? I told Chuck I don't talk over 60 minutes. I don't think your butt can take much more of that after that dinner. Uh, my brother Norman called me up. You know, the guy that did all my fighting? And he said, Larry, how about taking me up to that hospital? And I said, how come? He said, well, they can get you sober. They can get me sober. And my brother Norman come to this fellowship. And we began to have a wonderful time. We began to go to conferences and and just have the time of our life because he was my hero. He was five years older than me. And we ripped and run, him and his wife and me and Barbara. And he was about three years sober in this program. And he called me up one day and he said, man, I got some bad news. I said, what's the matter, Norm? And he said, I went to the doctor today and he told me I had cancer. I said, really? How bad? And he said, I don't know. But I want you to go back to the doctor with me. And we went back to the doctor. My brother had terminal cancer. And he only gave him three months to live. And that's exactly how long he lived. In the last three months, he spent most of that in a hospital. And I would stay with him at night time. And I'd pull a chair up by his bed. And I'd say, Norm, what do you want to do tonight? I called him Norm. And he'd say, why don't you read to me from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous? And I would read to him from the big book. And we would talk about God. And we would talk about love. And we would talk about death. You see, my brother got to meet you people. And he met the most powerful force that's in the world, in these rooms, and it's called L-O-V-E, love. You all love my brother just like you love me. And my brother died in that hospital. And I'm going to tell you what, man, I come completely unglued. I just didn't feel like I could go on because he was my hero. And I want to tell you what saved me. The guys I sponsor. Thank God that I sponsor people in this program. You know, if you don't sponsor, get you somebody. Because the guys that I sponsored got me to meetings through that time when I would not have went by myself. You know, when they would call me and I wanted to lay on the couch and lick my wounds, they'd say, where are we going tonight? Now, you try and tell them they need to go to a meeting, but you don't. And I will tell you what, God began to bring me guys to sponsor that was just like my bullheaded brother. He really filled my cup. And my life was so busy that I didn't have time to grieve my brother. And I'm so grateful for that. You know, I, I know Norm's still with me today. He lives in my heart. And I know that he found peace and happiness in Alcoholics Anonymous before he left this earth. And how important that is. My mother, my mother's 95 years old this month. Uh, she lived with me and Barbara for two years, and it was quite an adventure. We used to play little games like she'd hide her money and lose them, and I'd have to look for it. And 
all kinds of crazy little games, you know, and, and uh, I was grateful that I got to do them things for my mother. My dad lived to be 93, and he passed away, and my mom's going to be turning 95. That means I'm from good stock, you know. Y'all all will get tired of hearing me around here. But I started getting real sick, and I had to have some more back surgery. My brother, Ralph, that's in the fellowship, uh, him and his wife come down, and they said, we're going to take Mom. You, you know, you're getting too bad, and it's too much of a chore on you. And, and Mom lives with them today. She's been out with them about the last eight months. and She's pretty happy out there, you know. She seems to be doing real good. And, and uh, me and Barbara's had a lot of health problems lately. That's one of the reasons I haven't talked. I had to have some more surgery. And, you know, at one time I had a 10-hour surgery on my back, and I had to have blood. And I want you to know that people in Alcoholics Anonymous give me blood. And I had to be laid in a hospital bed for two months. And I wasn't able to get out and go to meetings, and they brought meetings to my house. And I'm going to tell you the most remarkable thing. Barbara hates for me to tell this. But I couldn't even get out of the bed to go to a bathroom. And I want you to know that people in Alcoholics Anonymous emptied my urinal. Now, if you don't think that ain't a big deal, you call the favorite beer joint or your drug dealer and tell them to come over and empty your urinal. I don't believe they'd be there. You know, but people in Alcoholics Anonymous done that to me. I had to have some more surgery, and my sponsor, Jack, said, I'm going to give you some blood. I said, oh, Jack, you're too old, man. You, you can't be giving blood. He said, I want you to finally have some aristocratic blood in your... <laughs> now, Jack was an old wine old that slept in a cardboard box behind the Downs Cafe out by Churchill Downs. And, you know, he come to AA, and he thinks he's got royal blood. And Jack gave me some blood, and I'm so grateful he did. Because it hadn't been but a couple months ago, Jack got sick. And he had cancer. And you know, I used to go to chemotherapy with him. I would take him. It took about three or four hours, something like that. And, and they had me and Jack way back at the end of this hall because we act like two idiots. And, and we would get back there and laugh and everything. And, and Jack told me some wonderful, wonderful stories about Alcoholics Anonymous. I got to learn so much from him. And he made me promise him some things. And, and, you know, one day they come back there and they was taking blood. And I said, Jack, your blood is blue. He said, I've been trying to tell you that for years. <laughs> you know, and uh, I was able to do things for Jack. And I'm so grateful that I was sober and I was there for Jack at the end. And Jack passed away. And it was a hard time for me. I had lost my best friend a month before that, a guy I run with. And I have to go in my home group and... Jack and my best friend always sat back in this one little corner. We used to call it Jack's Corner. And boy, it's hard for me to go in there and look back at that room. I sat back there today, you know, just to keep that corner warm. And I feel their presence there. You know, they left me a legacy to carry. Jack left me a big one. And I had to find me another sponsor. I promised Jack that I would get another sponsor. And at one time I was thinking about quit talking. I wasn't going to come out and talk no more. And before that, Jack died, he made me promise that if God asked me to go carry a message, I would do that. You know, he said, don't think for yourself. If you make a decision, it's probably wrong. <laughs> and that's usually the way. If I make a decision, it's probably wrong. And today, you know, I try and talk to my sponsor, Bud, and I do a lot of praying today. I believe in a lot of prayer. And today I don't pray for things. You know, I don't have no right to pray for things. I used to pray for things. I used to pray that I'd win the lottery, all that kind of nonsense. 
But I believe God gave me the most blessed thing that I'll ever have, and it's called sobriety and Alcoholics Anonymous. And today, I only pray for knowledge of His will for me and the power to carry that out. That's all I need. To be at these meetings and to be there for the new guy and to do what I can in Alcoholics Anonymous. What a life we have today. Me and Barbara has been places and met some of the most wonderful people on the face of this earth. And we have so many new friends. And how lucky we are. There's nothing we've been through these past few years that's anything worse than what it was in the drinking. You know, we've got life made today. You know, we're retired. We get up when we want to. Uh, I don't work today, and I don't do nothing, and I don't start that till noon. And uh, we just do what we want to do. You know, we got wacky hours. Sometimes we'll get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and put a pot of coffee on and sit at the table and laugh and drink coffee. And, you know, it's nice. Then we go back to bed. <laughs> The only thing I'm kind of disappointed is that we didn't get that mirrored room this weekend. Some guys, some guys have all the luck. But I'm happy to be here. I don't know if I've said anything to help anybody in this room, but me and Barbara needed to be here this weekend. We needed to hear the speakers and feel the love and the fellowship. And when I got out of treatment, my greatest fear was what was I going to tell people when they asked me to have a drink. And God give me this poem shortly after I come out of a treatment center. And I always try and close with it because there might be somebody in there having a bad day. And you may not know what to tell your friends. And I'd like to close with this poem. Before closing, I want to thank you all for having me here. It's been such a blessing for me and Barbara. And this poem's called An AA Member's Dream. And it said, I dreamed one night I passed away and left this world behind I started down that lonely trail, some of my friends to find. I came to a signboard on the trail, the directions it did tell. Keep right to go to heaven, turn left to go to hell. I hadn't been too good on earth, just a hopeless, boozing rake. I knew there at the crossroads the path I'd have to take. I started down the rocky path that leads to Satan's place. I shook within, not knowing what I'd have to face. Oh, Satan met me at the gate. What's your name, my friend? I said, I'm just sober Sam that came to a bad end. He glanced through the yellow files. You made a mistake, I feared. You're listed as an alcoholic. We don't want you here. I said, I'm looking for my friends. And a smile stole over his face. If your friends are alcoholics, they're any other place. So I went back the way I came to the crossroads I did see. Then I turned right to heaven. As happy as could be. St. Pete smiled and said, Come in. For you I have a birth. You are an alcoholic. You've had a hell on earth. I saw old Bud Pete and a friend called Belle. And brother, I was tickled because I thought they'd gone to hell. So brothers, I'll take warning. Learn something from my trip. You've got a place in heaven if you try hard not to slip. If someone tempts you with a drink... When you're not feeling well, just tell them you're going to heaven and they can go to hell. Thank you all and God bless you.